We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad, as always, to have you with us um, in a different room today, and uh, good to be with you. If you can turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Well, we come this morning to our final week in the epistle of 1 John. I hope it's been one that's helpful and encouraging and a blessing to you. And hope it's been um, hope it's been an encouragement as we've moved through this book that is um, challenging in so many ways, that is um, convicting in so many ways, and one that reveals so much about our own hearts and our own world. Um, one of the things that has struck me as we've moved through this epistle is that we live some two thousand years removed from its writing. And if you think about the passage of time, if you think about everything that's happened over the course of 2,000 years, um, even just hitting the highlights, we realize how much of the world has changed, how much has shifted the mindset of peoples, the empires that have come and gone, the, the, the various things that have happened in the history of humanity, and yet the temptations and struggles that Christians face are much the same as they've always been. We have a tendency, I think, to view our era as unique. And certainly there are many ways in which the, uh, in which the generational experience that we share is unique from what has come before us. But this letter is a reminder that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because at the root of what was happening in the epistle of 1 John was a battle between truth and falsehood. A battle between what God had declared to be true and what the Bible has revealed about who we are and who God is and what people in their own desires and in their own, in their own pursuit of their own affections and their own pleasure declare to be true. And in their case, the Christians of Asia Minor were battling for the truth of the gospel against all of the spiritual influences around them. They not only lived in a time where where many different gods were worshipped, depending on where you uh, lived in geography, but in addition to that, where there was this division that had arisen within their own church, where people that they had known well and shared meals with and, and spent time with and would have considered friends had left their congregation and were embracing something that was entirely different than anything resembling Orthodox Christianity. What the Gnostics were embracing was something that was completely unfamiliar to anyone who would have considered themselves a Christian, and yet the doubts remained within their own minds and within their own lives of whether it was possible that what these Gnostics were believing was actually truth. And in much the same way, the world today values the lived experience of certain individuals as the ultimate experience of truth. It's what leads to generational adages about the importance of living your truth, as if truth is subjective and is unassailable. See, we live in a world that is marked by the influence of postmodernity, which which if you were to boil it down, essentially means that to the extent that one can even say that something is true, truth itself is at most experiential, individual, and fluid. 
And that lack of belief in any sort of a definable truth, in any sort of an agreeable truth, has led society, generally speaking, to chaos and confusion. Where things that people for millennia have believed and known to be true have been either called into question or outright denied. Unless we think of that as an us versus them issue, the truth is that the temptations of post-modernity are just as real for Christians as they are for anyone. The truth is all of us want to be accepted. We all want to be approved. We all want to be affirmed by other people. And for many, the temptation to begin to ignore what the Bible makes evident in order to gain the approval of the world is a trade-off that they're willing to make. But among many things that makes the Christian faith so beautiful and so unique is its certainty, its confidence, and its boldness in declaring that there is a truth that can be known solely through the word of God as revealed by the Holy Spirit. And in the text that we have in front of us this morning, John gives us three things of which we can be absolutely sure in our Christian walk. Three things that in the words of John, we know. And so I think it's appropriate that as we end our study of 1 John this morning, we receive those same assurances that our Christian brothers and sisters received some 2,000 years ago and, and see what John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declared that we know. The things that we know that we know. The things of which we can be absolutely assured and confident where we don't have to have any question or any uncertainty in our hearts and our minds. And so John gives us those three things by beginning with this in verse 18. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now we addressed one aspect of this idea when we were looking at chapter 3. Verses 8 through 9, that particular text says that no one who's received new life from God makes a practice, or in other words, is marked by a lifestyle of sinning. Meaning that if you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God indwells your heart and and begins to do his work of transformation in your life, he will not leave you to continue on in unrepentant sin as a matter of lifestyle without bringing conviction. Now, each of those things is inherently important because what he is not suggesting in chapter 3 and what he is not suggesting in chapter 5 is that Christians do not sin. Because to read it that way would actually be to ignore what he says in chapter 1 where he says, if you say that you don't have any sin, you're a liar. In other words, if you claim you don't have sin, you have just sinned. So what is John actually suggesting here? In chapter 3, he says it won't be a matter of lifestyle for you. In other words, it's not going to be the thing that marks you. Unrepentant sin, devoid of the Holy Spirit's conviction, is not something that marks the life of a believer. Can a believer sin or even continue in a pattern of sin for for a season or for seasons in their life? Yes, according to Scripture, they can, but not without the Holy Spirit doing his convicting work in the life of the believer. And ultimately, that conviction, as we talked about several weeks ago, always leads itself, it leads itself back to that position of being being restored. That's what it always connects back to. And that that is exactly what the false teachers in Asia Minor were missing. 
they had declared that what you did with your physical body, the, the, the activities in which you participated physically didn't actually matter because the only thing that mattered was what happened with your soul. The only thing that mattered is what happened in the spiritual realm. And that particular viewpoint enabled them to engage in all sorts of debauchery, particularly when it came to sexual sin. Because they said, look, what we do, we do with our bodies ultimately doesn't matter. What, what matters is only what happens with our spirit. So we can do whatever we want in our body. In other words, they had made a pattern, a lifestyle of sin. There was sin in which they participated, for which they felt no conviction from God. And there was no desire in their own heart to glorify God in their bodies, as, as is instructed to us in other passages in Scripture. And for that reason, John explicitly says, if you're able to do that without the conviction of the Holy Spirit and ultimately without turning away from that sin, you know that you're not actually a believer in Jesus Christ. And so John in chapter three makes this argument, begins to build this case that when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of believers, he works to convict of the sin in which we participate. So what it means then here is that the Holy Spirit will not allow continual unrepentant sin to be the predominant lifestyle of the Christian. We have confidence that he will convict and transform. And here in chapter five, John is making this connection back to chapter three, but he's expanding on the idea. And he says, unlike what these Gnostics are telling you, we know that those who've been redeemed don't continue on unchanged. But he takes a slightly different angle on it in verse 18, the second half of the verse. Notice what he says. But he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, if you notice what John is saying here, this is actually kind of a neat turn of phrase because up until this point, every time John talks about the idea of those that are born of God, he's talking about believers in Jesus Christ. He's talking about you and me, those who've received new life, those who've been born again. But here in this particular text, he says, he who was born of God protects the believer. And in this case, that reference to the, to the one who was born of God is a reference to Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus who has always existed in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, in perfect relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit as, as we heard in our prayer, now works to protect those who belong to God from the attacks of the evil one. And commentators remind us at this point that as John writes this, he probably has in mind the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden that's recorded for us in John chapter 17, where Jesus himself says in verse 14, I have given my people your word. Speaking to the Father, this is Jesus talking. I've given my people your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but listen, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, when you know Jesus and when you have experienced his grace and received new life and new sight from him, you can be assured on one hand that you will experience temptations and attacks from Satan. Some people have a view of Christianity that when they come into faith, their problems are going to go away. That all of a sudden, every element of their life is going to be better, at least in human terms, of what people mean when they say something like that. But the assurance that we have from Scripture is actually that when we, when we know Jesus Christ, one of the things we are assured of is that temptation is coming and the attacks of the evil one are coming. 
that Satan would love nothing more than to distract you from the goodness and the providence of God, to try to lead you back into the bondage from which you were redeemed and the slavery to sin that marked your life prior to Christ. The great Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, which by the way, what a great title for a book. Like, Why don't we name books like that anymore? Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And here's what he says. He says, pirates do not target poor empty vessels and beggars need not fear the thief. Those that have most of God and are most rich in grace shall be most assaulted by Satan who is the greatest and craftiest pirate in the world. So he says, temptation and attack is coming, but those who have Jesus are assured that the evil one cannot touch them. And what he means when he says that is that despite the experiences you have, the temptations you face and the hardships that you experience in this life and hardships do and will come, you can rest assured that your fate and your future is secure in Jesus. That the life that he grants when you are born again in him is held securely by him. That eternal life is something that cannot be stripped away from those who know Jesus. That your destiny is set and your course is secure. And we have that confidence, says John, because Jesus who holds us, who holds us securely, knows firsthand what it is to be tempted. The author of Hebrews writes about this in chapter four of that book when he says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. That when you read about the temptation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan himself appears to Jesus and presents him with various temptations, do you understand that in a very real way those were temptations? We tend to think about the fact that because of Jesus' perfection, because of his deity, that he heard those things and they simply bounced off. But do you realize that in some sense or another, there must have been temptation in that? That Jesus faced the most substantial temptations that one could face. Knowing what laid ahead of him, knowing the destiny that, that the Father had set for him, knowing all the physical human brutality as well as the spiritual wrath that he was going to experience, he stood face to face with Satan and Satan said to him, if you do this for me, I will grant you these things. I'll deliver you. I'll make people fall down and worship you. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And in each and every instance, Jesus responds to those temptations with an answer from Scripture, rooting his hope and his own confidence in the fact that he had a perfect, loving, heavenly Father who had already guaranteed his future, who had already assured him of his confidence. And it leads us to this saying in the book of Hebrews where the author says, do you understand that you, Christian, have a high priest, one to whom you can go and to whom you can talk and to whom you can confess and, to, and in whom you can confide, do you understand that you have a priest who has been tempted in every way like you have? In other words, he has experienced the, the wide gamut of human temptation. 
of the difficulty and the suffering of what it is to be human, and yet he faced those things without sin. He understands our weakness. He knows what it is to be tempted, and yet he was able to do it without sin. And that leads us to this point where where John implicitly is saying, do you understand that in this epistle I've been writing to you as sons of God, children of God, sons and daughters is, is, is quite literally what he means there of God. And that is the exact same title that he uses in this verse now to reference Jesus Christ. That God the Father takes the title that once solely belonged to Christ and he now applies it to you that he views you with that same sort of affection and that same sort of compassion and has that same sort of love for you individually that he has for his own son, Jesus Christ. And the fact that God himself has called us sons is an assurance that our salvation will not be stripped away, that he's with us in the middle of temptation and hardship, that he has not forgotten us, that our eternal security cannot be lost, that God's love for you runs so deep that he calls you by the same title that once only belonged to Jesus. And so I'd ask you, is there anything that a loving heavenly father would not be willing to do to ensure the spiritual safety and deliverance of his children? And the answer comes back from John, absolutely not. He's He is willing and able and has done everything necessary to ensure your deliverance and your safety. And for all of their spiritual arrogance, this was an assurance that the Gnostics did not have. Because they denied the virgin birth and they denied Jesus' identity as the Christ and they denied that he was the son of God and by denying those truths, the Gnostics had made themselves vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. They had fallen prey to Satan's schemes. Once again, referencing Thomas Brooks's book, he said it this way, the main reason why men dote upon the world and damn their souls to get the world is because they are not acquainted with a greater glory. See, that was the trade that the Gnostics had made. They thought that they were experiencing life to the fullest. They thought they they had cornered the spiritual market on godliness by virtue of this theology that they had created that still allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do. In other words, they were using God and manipulating the gospel to do what it was that they otherwise already wanted to do. They thought they were experiencing all of the goodness that this world had to offer, but they were depriving themselves in doing so of the goodness and the graciousness of what God had already promised and delivered through Jesus Christ. And the reason that they were willing to settle for those things is because they couldn't even imagine the comfort and the fulfillment and the confidence and the joy that could only be found in the Father through Jesus Christ. See, because they were not, to use Brooks's words, because they were not acquainted with God's glory, they were willing to damn themselves spiritually. They traded the eternal for the temporal. Like Esau, they had exchanged their birthright for a bowl of stew. They couldn't even comprehend the spiritual riches that they had mortgaged for the momentary pleasures that they desired. 
And this leads John to his second declaration of truth in verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, in order to properly understand this, we need to first understand what John does not mean in saying this. John is not suggesting that God and Satan are equal and opposite forces, which is kind of the common folk view of how people view God and Satan. That these are just two different forms of essentially the same being who are constantly at war with each other and and they're evenly matched and they alternate as to who has the upper hand, but that is not at all the picture that the Bible itself presents. While Satan is powerful according to the word of God, he doesn't even compare to the power of God. And all you have to do is read the Bible to begin to see this pattern play out. We see it, for instance, as we referenced several weeks ago in the book of Job, where Satan has to come hat in hand to ask God if he can interfere in Job's life. And even then, God only allows it to further his own eternal purposes. We see it in the Gospels every time Jesus has a confrontation with the demons and they beg and plead for Jesus not to destroy them. We see it in the battle of Armageddon when, the, when Satan has the armies of the world arrayed against God and Jesus defeats them with a word from his mouth. The battle that they had built themselves up for, that they had been looking forward to, where they were going to attempt to overthrow God himself is over in a moment as a word is spoken from the mouth of Jesus. So John's point here is not that there is any question about superiority. His point, though, is that the value system of this world is aligned with that of the evil one and not with God. That the pleasures of this world and the promises of this world have no lasting eternal worth. That everything people might live for, other than what is eternally valuable according to God, will be burned up and is worthless. And as such, the promises that this world makes about what will make you happy and what will bring you satisfaction and in what you can find your identity and in what makes life worth living are ultimately vapid and empty. They are empty promises that the world makes but cannot deliver on. That there is no pleasure in this world that can, excuse me, there is no pleasure this world can offer that cannot be lost in an instant. And to live for those things is an exercise in futility. But when John says here that we know we are of God, what he is saying is that we have new eternal life that grants us a new eternal purpose with a new eternal destiny. That for those who are in Jesus Christ, we have the ability to live in light of the presence and the grace of God and to live for something that cannot be taken away. That God's glory and wonder and goodness is something that we begin to experience the moment that we are born again and something we will continue to explore and experience for all eternity. That the greatest pleasures we can experience in this world from family and friends to food and drink are just a foretaste of the goodness of God. They're things that point us to the generosity and creativity of our Father. That when we consider the complexity of the atoms that bind our world together, we don't see randomness and chaos and fortune as its source, 
but rather the technical brilliance of a designer. That when we see galaxies unfold and stars that are light years away and recognize that the entirety of the universe sits in the palm of the hand of God, we see the power and glory of our creator. And when we remember that that same God knows us by name and calls us sons and daughters, it grants us a whole new purpose and meaning. And he lays that out beginning in verse 20. The third thing of which we are assured, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. In a world that doesn't know truth and cannot even define truth, we can, through Jesus Christ, know the one who is truth. That this God, as vast and as expansive and as massive as he is, as powerful and mighty and holy as he is, is a God who is knowable. Not as a theory or a philosophy, but as a being to whom we can talk. A being to whom we pray and cry out and from whom we receive wisdom and comfort and love. And in Jesus Christ, truth has been revealed. It has been put on display. It has been communicated in perfectly understandable language. See, Jesus revealed the truth of our situation. His life on this earth proved that our sin was so great that nothing short of his sacrifice on our behalf could rescue us from the punishment we deserved. That our sin was such an offense to God, was such a plague on our soul, and that led us to spiritual death to such an extent that nothing short of the God of the universe stepping into time and stepping into humanity could save us from it. But his life also showed us that we are so loved that he was willing to make that sacrifice to bring us to himself. And that's why the falsehood of the Gnostics was so tragic. They claimed to love God, but they rejected the person, the very means by which they could enjoy relationship with him. There was a form of worship in which they participated, but it was a form of worship that was devoid of the actual presence and understanding of who God is. Because they rejected Jesus Christ, they didn't know at all the God that they claimed to love. And ultimately, that's why John ends the way that he does in verse 20. The second half of the verse, he says this, he is the true God, speaking of Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. See, the fatherly heart of God, or rather the fatherly heart of John in this text is revealed in the way that he speaks to this church. He refers to them as little children. 
And as any father or any mother who approaches their child with instruction knows, the reason that you give your child warnings and the reason you give them instructions is to keep them from things that are ultimately going to be harmful to them. And children don't always understand that. Children often feel like they are having something held back from them. Like there is something good that we are trying to keep out of our grasp. But as any parent knows, the only reason you offer those instructions and the only reason you offer those corrections and the only reason you offer those warnings is because you're saying, I love you so much that I don't want you to get, I don't want you to get yourself hung up on something that's going to hurt you. And John's fatherly heart comes out in this text as he says to these people, little children, keep yourselves from these idols. Keep yourselves from the things that are going to to detract from the goodness and the grace and the glory of God. Keep yourselves from the things that are going to distract you from the presence and the love of God. Keep yourself from things that promise satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and happiness and pleasure and success, but ultimately cannot deliver any of those things. John is saying, don't be drawn away by this world. Even if this world is speaking in the language of religion, as the Gnostics were. Don't be distracted by the idols of this life and in doing so miss the most incredible gift that God could have offered. Don't be willing to trade, as the Gnostics did, the eternal for the temporal. Don't chase the creation and forget the creator. Embrace Jesus Christ as the true God in the eternal life. See on the cross and in the resurrection what he's done for you. That through the cross, you can receive forgiveness that he's extended to you. And that through his resurrection, you can receive new life. Allow the truth of who God is and what he's done to stand as infinitely greater in your mind and life than the trinkets and the momentary pleasures of this world. And in doing so, experience the wonder of being called a son or daughter of the Most High God. I wonder how often we take those titles for granted. Our tendency is to view God as either distant or far off, unconcerned with the experiences and the momentary happenings of our life or to view him as interested but unable to intervene. And neither of those things are true. That God is so concerned with the happenings of your life that he is utterly present, as we talked about last week, and able to intervene in the most powerful way beyond what we can imagine. That we have an identity in Jesus Christ that cannot be stripped and one that cannot be enhanced on. So enjoy the goodness and the safety and the assurance that Christ alone can offer, brother and sister. And don't trade that for anything that this world might try to offer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the promises of this book. We thank you that it is as relevant to our experience some 2,000 years after it was written as it was to its original audience. And we thank you that that 
even alone, speaks to its veracity. God, that it's true because it stands the test of time. It's true because the temptations that we're facing, this early church, were just variations on a theme of the temptations that we face today. And for us, it may not be Gnosticism as we've defined in these, in these sermons, Lord, but for us, it is exactly the same idea. The promises of this world, the promises of spiritual enlightenment that are devoid of the understanding of who Jesus Christ is and of what he's done for us. God, keep us from thinking that there is value in anything spiritual that is disconnected or unrelated to who you are. Help us to find our confidence and our assuredness in your word that is as true today as it has ever been. And God, keep us from idols. Keep us from things that would draw us into sin, that would draw our attention and our affections away from you. And God, help us as well to keep things properly prioritized that we wouldn't take things that are good and make them into gods. That we wouldn't try to put the weight of eternity and the weight of our identity on things that were not built to handle that weight. But instead, God, that we would entrust those things to you and to you alone. So God, we thank you that we have these assurances, that we have these three things that we know, and that we can rest confident and sure in the truth of those things because you've declared them to be true. So God, we pray your blessing on this congregation, on our own hearts as we go to leave this place this morning and go about our lives throughout the course of this week. Remind us of who we are as sons and daughters. And for those who may not know their identity in you, would today be the day where they would receive that invitation where they would see the goodness and the grace that you and you alone can offer and where they would find their hope and their eternal security in you alone. And it's in your name we pray, amen.